For those who are familiar with church life, familiar in church life, the phrase, it is finished, is one that you're probably aware of. It's a pretty famous phrase in the Gospels. It is finished. What the Greek language takes one word to communicate. Ours needs three. Uh, It's because we like word order and we don't have endings that represent different kinds of person, places, genders, numbers. So we say it is finished. There was one word written there, but either way, we are still probably aware of its, the statement itself, Christ on the cross claiming that it is finished. It, though, is not a very specific word. It is finished. You have to go, what? what? What's the it there? We know the phrase, and it probably gives us feel-goods. If you're a believer, you go, this is nice. What is finished? What is finished? What has ended and is no more? What is finished? What does it mean that it is finished? What did Jesus finish? And does John give us any more specific or additional understanding of what that phrase, it is finished, might be. I think both, are, I think we have a common meaning for it is finished that we'll look at today, but there's also, I think, a John understanding of the it is finished, that, that John adds texture to the idea of what is finished. As you follow along in the Gospel of John, we'll go backwards some and see some things that Jesus has said up to this point throughout the Gospel. But what we'll really see is first the fulfillment of Scripture, which has been happening continually. We'll see the payment for sins. That's the big one that I think everybody goes, yes, it is finished. The payment has been made. But then we'll also just recognize that in John, there's this understanding of finishing the Father's will as well. I want to give a hat tip to Dr. Will Johnston. None of you know who he is, but back in the fall, I was up at school and I was just chatting about John. He really likes the Gospel of John. He's a New Testament professor at DTS Houston. And I was like, hey, we're preaching through the Gospel of John. And he's like, you know, I, I, and he, uh, when you get people on the things they're interested in, it doesn't really matter anymore what you were doing. And so you just have to go, okay, cool, yeah, that's great. And so, uh, so he starts to tell me what he, he's like, I've just been reading this, I've been thinking about this more, and the idea of thirst, and it is finished. And, and he's like, I think John has given us some, some clues as to what that is. And I was like, that's great, that's awesome. I'm not, I mean, I'm not preaching that for like seven more months, but when I get there, I'm going to ask you again. So I did. I was preparing for this, and I just shot him a note. I said, I remember you had said some things, and I just wanted to, to see what those were again. Do you mind sharing them with me? And he's like, of course. And so he gives me this long note with some teaching that he's even done on it. So Dr. Johnston really helps me out on the back end of this with the understanding of the Father's will. I think there is that common understanding of what it means for Jesus' work to be finished. But then there's just the recognition of the work that he's doing and doing all that his Father has put before him that John is uniquely tying us to. So, fulfillment of Scripture, payment of sin, the accomplishment of the Father's will. Thank you, Dr. Johnston, for all of your help. But let's do first things first. The fulfillment of Scripture. This is interesting. 
only because we're not sure if it goes backwards or forwards. And here's what I mean. Look at John 19, 28. Jesus is fulfilling scripture, uniquely tied to the crucifixion. But in verse 28, he goes, after this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, that's important, knowing that it was finished, said it was finished, but knowing it was finished, he said to fulfill scripture, I thirst. Okay? He said to fulfill scripture, I thirst. Now, is he, what kind of thirst is he stating, and what does that mean? Uh, lots of different ideas. What we have in 29, though, a jar of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. Well, a couple of things this could be, right? If, we're just ta- if he's just fulfilling some kind of statement, there are statements throughout the Psalms about thirsting for God. Okay, so let's just look at a few. Uh, Psalm 42, 1, as the deer panteth for, if you know that one, then you've been at church a long time. Um, so, as a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? Psalm 63.1 O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So is it, is it fulfilling these statements from, from Psalms? It's just about thirsting for God, that there's some desire or longing to do God's will. That could be, but that seems, for what's going on on the cross, that seems real broad. I mean, Jesus has always said that he desires to do his Father's will. So is there a unique fulfillment of Scripture that now that he thirsts, that happens? Well, maybe, but if we're only looking back to go, well, what is he fulfilling by saying, I thirst? That's one thing. But he could also be saying that because he knows what's going to happen next. And when he knows what happens next, that could be what it is. Right before we look at that, there also is a highly messianic psalm, Psalm 22. And you might have heard something like this. My strength is dried up like a potsherd. My tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. That idea of like, like, like when your mouth is just dry and you thirst, that might get us a little closer because Psalm 22 is a highly messianic psalm that is quoted by Jesus about his crucifixion. So is John using this idea of thirst to link us back to Psalm 22 because there's no big other statement? Like if you notice like, Uh, why have you forsaken me? Today you'll be with me in paradise. Some of these other statements that we hear in the Gospels that are said on the cross, John doesn't have. He doesn't have that that other language. So John could be linking that third statement to Psalm 22, which is tying it into that crucifixion psalm that's often used. But if we're looking forward, then when they gave him sour wine, it actually he could have said that. This is kind of cool. He could have said that knowing what the response would be so that one more scripture might immediately be fulfilled. Right? He wasn't thirsting for his father's will only on the cross. He had always done that. So when they then gave him sour wine up to his mouth, you have Psalm 69, 21. They gave me poison for food and for my thirst they gave me sour wine to drink. So so you see how Jesus, we've talked about how Jesus is fulfilling and obeying Scripture up to the end, is that he could very well be saying things on the cross because he's aware of what would be the response. And when the response happens, more Scripture is fulfilled. 
not necessarily fulfilling new scripture only in his thirst for his father's will. That's not a new thing. That's not a, that's not a new expression for him. However, it is true. The link to Psalm 22 might be there if that's the, the, my, the tongue sticks to my mouth reference in the crucifixion psalm. And then also, though, if it's what is then done by the soldiers in order to fulfill more scripture, well, now John just kind of keeps taking us into only God could do this. And now, remember, we said this last week and say it again, that, that Jesus's provision for us, his obedience is up until his last breath. It goes all the way to the very end. And so for the Son of God to be fulfilling Scripture with two breaths left in his lung, stating things that would be fulfilling Scripture because he knows what those beside the cross tending to him would do, for the Son of God to do that would be rather Son of God of him to do. He's just that aware that even in his dying breaths, he is that aware. Now, I'm not sure uh, if you have ever been around a bedside as maybe a loved one is passing. But very often, with breaths to go, there is no communication. There's just waiting. And so you have, at this point, think about it, you have Jesus fully aware fully conscious, fully committed still to fulfilling his Father's will. He is not, up until the end, he is not just there on the cross, but he's actively obeying his Father, and he's actively seeing to it that the Scriptures that need to be fulfilled are being fulfilled. He is doing what I can't do. He's doing what you can't do. That level of awareness. And I just think it's funny. I mean, I think about this in, in my own life and just how much I worry about my life, what's going to happen, the sleep I lose, to think, oh gosh, I lost a lot of sleep last night, worried about losing an hour, which is a very bad thing to do. Um, all the things that fill us with anxiety and fill us with worry and fill us with struggle and just, just fill us even maybe even with doubt. And yet there we have Jesus who's totally aware in every moment and in every way. At the time when life could, it would be understood that he needs a few moments to breathe and doesn't even really have to think about Scripture in that moment. What is he doing but thinking about fulfilling Scripture? Ensuring that to his last breath, everything would be done. That's our Savior. But this all prepares us for what would be like the, the, the ultimate moment in the Gospels and clearly the ultimate moment in John. And if you're familiar with storytelling, you really have to get to the ultimate moment with not a lot of time left in the story, right? You don't peek 30 minutes into the story and then have two hours of what happens next. And if you look at where we are in John, right here at the end of chapter 19, there's going to be some resurrection accounts, the restoration of Peter. We're kind of right up against it. We have this moment in verse 30, which gets to the question that we've been asking. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. 
what is finished. At this point in time, now the resurrection is to come, but all that was needed up to this point in time has been fulfilled. So what is finished? The one that we would probably all know and get right on a test as the, as the main one is he finished paying for sin. That the payment for sin had been completed. Now, if you are familiar with uh, like a very dry and arid ancient Near Eastern or biblical times Israel, then you know because of discoveries like the Dead Sea Scrolls and the like that it's a very good climate for keeping documents alive. Not ours. Spring doesn't keep anything alive, except mildew. It's the only thing we keep alive. So, like, if we had documents that were kept in jars outside, not a good idea. It just becomes food for rodents and whatnot. But in, in Israel, that's a great climate for storing documents. And, in fact, people find receipts. This is the funny thing. They, like, they find receipts with like the shorthand, the, the Greek word is tetelestai, which is pretty long to write. So they find a shortened version of that on receipts to say, very just secularly, like, like paid in full, right? Like we have a stamp, don't we, that, that we stamp on things. We'll say paid in full. Right now it comes across as just like a spot on a PDF document, like paid. So we do the same thing. Like I need to know this is paid. I need evidence that's been paid. And so you could find old receipts that would have the, the shorthand of it's been paid, right there written on it. I think it's a very clear understanding that when Jesus is saying that, he is saying something has been paid in full. The payment that has been made is the payment for our sin. The payment for our sin required the perfect obedience of Christ from the beginning to the end in his incarnation. And let's not forget that he is still incarnate. He didn't, he didn't resurrect and then turn into a spirit. We have a bodily, alive, risen Lord Jesus still that we will be able to see in the new heaven and the new earth. And so we as, uh, as a sinful people demanded, it demanded that our sin be paid by a perfect sacrifice. This is what the book of Hebrews is really all about. Don't run back to secondary ways of trying to atone, to try and cover up your sin, because Christ has come and everything before him has been inferior and it's only been a shadow that points to him and to his work. And so if the blood of, of bulls and goats only, only does so much, then how much more cleansing do we receive from the Lord Jesus? that Jesus pays for our sins in full. Now, there's still a problem with this for us. And the problem is not with the reality of it. It's with the understanding and living as if that is true. Very hard sometimes for us to live as if those things are true. Now, first, if you're here this morning and you have not trusted in Jesus, like I'm going to ask, what are you waiting for? Because there's no other. I mean, we've been through this. This is 50-whatever-th Sunday of John where we're seeing time and time again that Jesus is uniquely fulfilling, actively fulfilling Scripture. And even as we saw last week, Jesus is fulfilling Scripture by people, like he's using people who don't even know him to fulfill Scripture. Like he has that level of power and that level of authority. So from 
the incarnation to the death on the cross to the resurrection and beyond. But this portion of life that we've seen, Christ incarnate on this earth, not resurrected yet, that whole span he has in every breath, be it asleep or awake, in every breath he has done what has been asked of him. Because that is what was needed for our sins to be properly paid for. And yet, even though we don't have a sacrificial system in our culture, other cultures still do. Do you know the Samaritans are still there in Samaria and they'll still practice sacrifice? They'll still, they'll still try and follow aspects of the Mosaic law. That at times when missionaries would go into foreign lands and they would have to try and stop human sacrifice that they would see that and go, no, 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 you can't be killing people. We might, we might think that's weird. But so often, don't we still try and find ways to punish ourselves for our sins? Like there's a certain level of badness that we have to feel in order to feel good enough about being bad, that we no longer feel bad. It's really kind of twisted, isn't it? Like, I have to be really intensely bad about something. And this isn't remorse, because I do think remorse over sin is a great thing. Like, I don't want anybody to want to sin. But what's very hard for us is to still have the receipt that says paid in full. We still feel like, well, I don't know, though. Like, was that one covered? What about this next one? What about the outburst that I just had at work the other day? What about the frustration I had, or the lustful thought, or the frustration I had? What about that? Like, was that covered? Because, like, does it cover the, the kind of repetitive sins that I get into? Or, is like, did it cover, like, the first portion of it? And I know we think all of this is crazy. Intellectually, we know that that is not the case. However, as we live, we live as if it is mostly finished. And we fill in the gap with our own intensity about our sin. So we don't, we, instead of walking freely, we punish ourselves. We punish ourselves. We punish ourselves for stuff that happened decades ago. We just live with these skeletons in our closet of, well, I don't know if God would have forgiven this. I don't know if God would forgive that. And we live without experiencing the freedom to walk in newness of life because we, we, be, we feel bound by, well, did the payment cover that too? And the problem is, is that's really uncomfortable even for me because we can do, we collectively can do some pretty wicked things. Things that, that I would really like us to never do. We can think and do and behave in really wicked ways those are forgiven too. It's not a certain class of sin that gives, gets forgiven. Another class of sin then requires a little extra work on our part to get it forgiven. Or else Jesus would not have said, it is finished. The payment for sin is finished. 
Another one, and this is hard for us too. This is hard for us guilty conscience people like me. I notice I have an incredibly guilty conscience. Any of you who hangs out with me long enough will experience it. My family has to live with it, uh, and I feel very bad for them. This started when I was eight. I can pinpoint it. Uh, started when I was eight, uh, where things would go wrong, and I would feel terrible about it. And I wouldn't know what to do. Now, sometimes that's good because you want like an honest kid. I, I like being honest. My mom appreciated having an honest kid who generally wouldn't lie. I got better at lying as time went on. But maybe you'll read something in Scripture. Uh, you'll read First John, perhaps, and, or your, you know, his epistles. And he talks about like sins that do not lead to death and sins that do lead to death. Or you'll read about Jesus talking about the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. And you'll become overwhelmed that maybe I've done something that's unforgivable. Or perhaps your mind has become skewed because you've done something against somebody else and they have said to you, I don't know if I could ever forgive you for that. And you apply that statement that you've heard to, well, if that's the case in a human relationship, can God do any better than that? Because this is the relationship that I know. Maybe even you fathers in the room have said that to your own children at some point in time and said, I just don't know how that can be forgiven. And so your children live with this level of like, are there things that can and can't be forgiven? Rather than live as if things are unforgivable. We trust firmly. One of the hardest things to do, and we all have to do this in different ways. I do it, you do it, but one of the hardest things to do is hold on to something that you know is true from God's Word when everything in you wants to believe the opposite. Everything in you is like, no, 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 no. You're not good enough. You are that bad. You are that wicked. There really is no hope for you. When everything in us emotionally and culture around us screams that out, one of the most difficult things for us to do is claim what is true. Because our flesh gets in the way, our doubts get in the way, and it becomes so difficult to cling to truth. Let's flip it for a moment. The punishment, cost for sins, has been paid by Jesus. This, so, so, so far we've talked about our sins and how they are forgiven to whatever depth. And maybe you need that this morning. Maybe you need just to know that through faith in Christ you can be freely and fully forgiven for your sin and you can be made right with God the Father through Christ even right now. And I don't know what that means for consequences or in an earthly sense, for whatever those sins might be. But the great thing is the world can hold nothing against you. If God holds nothing against you, whatever the world tries to hold against you really is peanuts. It's nothing. I mean, even up to and including like a life sentence, whatever, that's fine. I have life with Christ. Like there's no concern for an earthly consequence when my relationship with an eternal God is made right. You live with it because there's no worry. So we've talked about our sin, but here's something else that becomes very hard. Remember when we were in the Sermon on the Mount series and we get into the Lord's Prayer where Jesus teaches the disciples how to pray and he uses this phrase, forgive us our debts as we forgive those or our debtors, right? Forgive us our trespasses might be what we remember, but forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And a very hard thing to do as a forgiven person is to always be a forgiving person. 
We're often like the, the, the servant who has been forgiven a great debt, and then we go to the people who owe us far less money, and we put them in jail because we want retribution against them, even though we had just been forgiven everything. And so what it also means that this has been paid in full is that we should not harbor other people's sins against us. We should have the capacity, by the power of the Spirit, not in ourselves, we should have the capacity to extend grace to those who have wronged us. I think one of the reasons that churches, local churches like Genesis, and local churches like any other one in our area or anywhere else, one of the reasons it has, they have such a difficult time to walk lovingly and joyfully and openly is for fear of what would happen if... I talk about how I've wronged somebody or I ask forgiveness and it doesn't go well. Or do you think that still bothers them? Do you think that that's still like a thing to them? Or I wronged them like two years ago and I want to just ask forgiveness for it, but that was two years ago. Does it even matter anymore? And rather than trust that, no, as a body, I trust that those God has placed in my own family have the capacity to extend grace toward me that I need. And that I too have that capacity to extend grace toward them when they need it. We should not assume that because we are in Christ, we are not going to offend or hurt one another. That'd be nice, but unlikely. But what we have in Christ is a means by which we can walk openly with each other. That we can forgive, that we can love, that we can care, that we do not need to hold things against one another. Why? Because Jesus said, for all time, for all who believe, it is finished. That means the payment for our sin. And because of that, we should not be like the unforgiving servant who goes, well, yeah, but I know I've been forgiven, but I'm pretty mad at you for that time you looked at me funny. And I just want you to feel bad for a little while. I'm so glad that because of this moment, God doesn't go to me and go, you know what, I just want you to sit in it. I just need you to feel bad for a while, a long while. But for us who love to live by the flesh, and by that I mean that kind of force that pulls us against God, that keeps us away from him, that makes it about us, we love to be sure we can feel really bad. Like, like I just want to bring my fraction of ascent to the table be it through my guilt or my work or my energy or my presumed holiness. I, I, I just want to bring whatever the value of the worst cryptocurrency is right now. And there are a lot of them. Like I just want to bring that, like one coin, which is worth one-tenth of one-tenth of one-tenth percent. Like that's all I want to bring. I know I'm going to be a millionaire soon, but like I just want to bring that one thing before God and say, does that count? It doesn't count. Because if it's paid in full, it means it has no other need. So Jesus finished the payment for our sins. But what about John? John, what does John do here? If you follow John, and you're familiar with it a bit, John is built not like the other Gospels. It's called the synoptics, which kind of have one optic, one look at how... Jesus' ministry went. And then there's John over here. And John's like, I don't know what John was thinking, but he's like, I just want to mess with him. 
right? Like I want to, I want to structure it differently. I want to write some different things. I, I, I want it, I want it different. So it's like you got the synoptics, and then you have John. In John, I don't know. He, I, like I don't know if he would be welcomed as a church member here. I don't know if he'd be like, dude, you're a little too weird for us. Like I, I don't know what would happen if John walked in here this morning because of the way that he writes and the things that he talks about. It's not that he's radical. It's just that he's enamored with God. Like, like that's really it. He's just enamored with God. And he writes about it. He writes about it in this gospel. And he writes about it in his letters. And he writes about it in Revelation. Like he just writes about what he's seen and what the Lord has done. And he has all of this energy for it. And if you know John, it, it's written, the gospel is written around Passovers. Like eating is an important theme in John, just like it is in Texas. So, so we get this part is that there's this idea in John that, that is, it, it extends the idea of just payment for sin. And what I mean by that is, is you go, well, hold on, just payment for sin? No, I, that's not what I mean. Payment for sin is there. But if you look at John, there, I think there's something else. And that something else is the way John communicates doing the Father's will, delighting in, and taking on all of what the Father has put in him. Now, you would probably all answer that question accurately on a quiz. You'd go, yeah, of course, everything God asks. But I want to just show a couple of things, because what is a meal but eating and drinking, right? Like, like if I just go, hey, come on over, we're going to have barbecue but nothing to drink, or crawfish. I, I'm not a beer drinker, but crawfish and beer is kind of a thing. Uh, so, so, like, if you're going to offer somebody food, you're going to offer them also a drink just a part of what goes on, unless you're just weird. If that's the case, have somebody else host your parties. But a meal includes eating and drinking. And it's interesting that Jesus talks about the work of the Father as almost a meal. Look at John 4.34. This is early on. It was a while ago, right? Jesus said to them, my food, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Accomplish is that same idea of finish. It is finished. My food is to do the will of him who sent me. My sustenance, my life, my delight, my enjoyment, my food, my energy source is to do the will of the one who has sent me and accomplish his work. It is finished. It is accomplished. Maybe some of your translations say, I don't, it's very hard for us to not have to say it is finished, even though it is accomplished also works. But you hear that idea of it's to accomplish his work. Now, there's more of that idea of accomplishing it when we talk about what is he finishing. So his food is to do the will of his father and accomplish his work, Okay. That idea of accomplish. If you look at that throughout John, there's interesting ideas of what it means to accomplish something. John 13, 1. We should know this. This is the beginning of the upper room. This is right before Jesus washes the disciples' feet. And we said in 13, 1, what he's doing is he's really, this is demonstrating not just the foot washing, but all that Jesus is going to do in these final moments of his life. Now, before the feast of Passover, there's feasting again. When Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of the world, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. To the end. To the finishing. It is 
finished. It is accomplished. There's this demonstration that the cross is the full expression of the love of God toward us. Jesus, doing, seeing his time had come, having loved those who were in the world, loved them to the end, to the finishing. We look at John 17, 4, in his high priestly prayer. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work you gave me to do. John 4 is, my food is to do his will and to accomplish, right? Accomplish it. Accomplish his work. John 17, 4, I glorified you, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. So from John 4 to John 17 to John 19, and remember John 17 and John 19 is is the span of hours, not the span of weeks or months. So we have, in a sense, the, the meal coming to its end. My food is to do his will and to accomplish his work. In John 17, he says the work is accomplished. And then <clears throat> you look at what he says in John 18. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given to me? So food is to do his will. And now, now look what happens as the meal is finishing, the food is finishing, what image shows up after that but the cup of suffering? He takes the cup when the food is finished. And he takes on the suffering for us. So we have Jesus who wants to fully do the will of his Father throughout his ministry, as testified to by him in John 4. We have the idea that even as the Passover is beginning in this final time, that his desire is to love his disciples to the end, to the fullest, to the finish, which would include the work on the cross. And so then we get back to what we saw right at the beginning of this passage, which is that Jesus, knowing that now all was finished, uses the language of thirst. And even in that thirst, he is bringing about the obedience of one more scripture fulfilled. And at that last moment, he cries out and he says, it is finished. If we only look at and by only, I don't mean only, you could, look at the, you could look at the payment of Jesus' sin forever. But if we only just take the, the, the judicial approach to this, then we miss that it is also the delight of Jesus to do the work of his Father. The eating of the meal to obey what he has put before him for his entire life. The drinking of through the cup of suffering, taking on to the very last breath all that was needed. So again, is judicial reasoning wrong? No. But just look at what John is saying about the accomplishment of the work of Christ. 
that this is where John is pointing to in John 13, which says, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. To the last moment, he is demonstrating love to his disciples, demonstrating love to this world in his last moment. Fully taking the work that the Father has put before him. I would say to that, we rejoice in his obedience. And we learn from Jesus, even in this moment, what is true delight? It's not having your way. True delight, true enjoyment, and true satisfaction is not doing what you want, but surrendering yourself to the will of God. That only a surrendered person, only a surrendered person can truly delight. Can fully delight. That Jesus teaches us from his first breath to his last one. That true satisfaction and true sustenance comes by doing what God has put before you. Not executing your own will, not executing your own desires, not bringing about the own thing, you know, the things that you want, but the submission to the will of the Father. That that is a far better place to be. And then, as we see this, it all right, it all things start to connect. Even things from other gospels where he's being tempted. And time and time again, when he's tempted with power or authority and the word of God is being distorted by Satan and Jesus responds with the word, he stands there firmly because he knows for sure what he is to do. His delight and his full obedience becomes ours. It is one of the coolest things to be able to do, just in an earthly sense, just go with me, is when, you, when somebody says to you, hey, go to this person and use my name. Oh, well, as long as it's for a good thing. Like, oh, wait, you're, you're Hans's friend? End of the line. But when you can go and you can associate yourself with somebody else that you wouldn't have known, and the reputation of the name that you use is then applied to you, it is one of the most amazing things. And have you ever even just, again, earthly sense, in an earthly sense, have you ever gone into a room with somebody or you've been at some kind of connection or convention or whatever, and then you find somebody and you have a mutual acquaintance. You both have a great friend and it's the same person. What happens the moment that two strangers realize that they share a beloved friend? They become friends. Anything you didn't like about the person is like, I, I, I just misread it. If you like him, you like her, I guess I can like you too. Everything changes even for us when we realize that something, there's some kind of connection there. Everything changes for us for all eternity when the Father looks at us and sees the work of the Son. Oh, you're with Jesus. Come on in. And that's what we get in It Is Finished. 
we get the enjoyment and delight of life with God because everything that we couldn't do had been done by Him. And through faith in Him, everything He did gets applied to us. Both the payment of sin and, from John as we see, the full, everyday, moment-by-moment obedience of the Father's will. All of it becomes ours. And we can walk in new life as a forgiven 